leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a sports business classroom alum, and he's a second-time guest on the program. His name is James Trigger. James, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, I had you on real early on in the season. We talked about uh, the opening night of the NBA, so I thought it'd be fun to get you back on as uh, as we're kind of coming towards the end of the season. We've got uh, essentially two weeks left to go in the regular season, and then, uh, you know, the excitement of the playoffs. So uh, we uh, we separately made, uh, made some top ten lists of things that we're looking forward to over these uh, these last few weeks of the season. So, James, why don't you get us started with uh, with something that you're excited about? Well, uh, to start, because the world knows they don't get enough national media attention, <laughs> the Los Angeles Lakers, um, and what we've been hearing pretty recently about their coaching situation, um, you know, ever since LeBron went down, the team has sort of been in a downward spiral. There's been a lot of talk about, is Luke Walton going to get fired? I think at this point, it's pretty much a certainty that he will. Um, if they keep Magic and Palenka around and they keep Walton around, um, there's not really any like feel-good narrative uh, momentum, I guess you can say, going into the offseason. And they're going to be looking for that going into free agency in the draft. Um, so if they were to get rid of him, we've heard very recently rumors about Jason Kidd, Mark Jackson, even a Tyron Lue potentially to the Lakers story came out today. And it's interesting that a lot of those stories and candidates are being leaked, um, even when we still have eight, ten games left to go. Um, so we'll see if he does get uh, fired as the coach. How soon after the regular season ends will that be? Will they wait until after the playoffs? 
Um, you know, are they going to try to get somebody in there before free agency in the draft so that they can sort of get some momentum going in their direction? And are they going to try to make a splashy hire? Are they going to try to make a really safe hire? It's going to be interesting to see what direction they go in and, uh, and obviously whatever decision they make, um, how people can, can kind of tie that back to did LeBron have a say in it and what does it mean for them going forward? Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. You mentioned a couple of the candidates, Mark Jackson and Jason Kidd. And I think it's especially, you know, I don't know if ironic is the right word, that a couple of the more recent examples of guys that when they were fired, their teams got significantly better. You know, with with Mark Jackson and the Warriors, Steve Kerr came in and significantly improved that team's offense. And of course, with uh, with Jason Kidd in Milwaukee, Mike Budenholzer has come in and he's probably the favorite to win coach of the year and has really, you know, improved that Milwaukee Bucks team. So it, it's just kind of funny that, uh, and you know, this goes to the question of like, who's at fault for this Lakers season? I think it's more uh, Magic Johnson and Rob Polinka, the guys that would be making this hire, and it would be funny that they would hire somebody, uh, you know, one of those coaches that uh, that got fired and their teams then improved because of it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, the the first day of free agency and all post LeBron signings, how everyone said they were terrible signings and they weren't good fits, and they turned out to be terrible signings and they weren't good fits. So uh, let's see if they have a better eye for coaching talent. I would be probably more inclined to say they would hire a Jason Kidd or a Mark Jackson, like a big name with a big personality, um, versus you know what the Cavs did hiring somebody like David Blatt with not a lot of coaching experience, but could be like an X's and O's tactical wizard. We don't know, but I think that they would be more up to hire a big name, somebody that can get a lot of national media momentum, uh, as if they didn't already have enough of that. Well, and the, the other thing, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the big question mark about all of their signings this past offseason was signing a bunch of non-shooters around LeBron, and, you know, their, their offensive identity and their offense in general suffered because of that. And, you know, because LeBron at his age, he's still an offensive force, but, uh, you know, he isn't quite as great getting to the basket and finishing, but, you know, he's still a terrific passer. And there's been so many instances where he's passed the ball out and, and they just were non-shooters on the receiving end and, and they couldn't finish. Uh, but, but then also on the defensive end, you know, it, it seems to me that at this stage of LeBron's career, uh, you can't really craft a, a great defense around him because of the lack of effort he shows and, uh, you know, the, the lack of leadership he shows specifically on that side of the ball. It's tough, though, too, because... Given the personnel that Luke Walton had, you know, I think if LeBron is your third best defensive player, I think you're fine. Um, and before LeBron got hurt when they were in the four or five seed range in the West and it looked like they were almost a shooter for the playoffs, I think they had between the, the 10th and 12th ranked defense. So their defense was very good given the personnel that they had, but it's really, really tough to craft the defense, a good defense, um, when you have somebody like JaVale McGee as your center. Now, they have good defensive personnel, guys like Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, a lot of length, Josh Hart, KCP. All those guys are fine defensive players, but all the fits were just so strange. Trying to play Kyle Kuzma and LeBron next to each other, um, you know, relying on Brandon Ingram to be like your sole wing stopper when they play guys like Kawhi, Paul George, Kevin Durant. Uh, it, it's really, really tough to sustain a good defense. Uh, and then you talked about the offensive issues that they had. So it was a weird fit from the beginning, and 
they got a lot of work to do to clean it up. Yeah, and you know Lonzo Ball's injury certainly did not help with that because, as you said, he is he's one of their better defensive players. But yeah, the uh, the that that is going to be a fascinating situation. Of course, the Lakers are the center of uh, a whole bunch of uh, NBA drama throughout the year. Uh, but uh, I, I thought we'd move on now to uh, to to my number ten on my list, which uh, is the uh, the the race for the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. Now, James, we're we're recording this on a Tuesday night, right after the conclusion of uh, of the Orlando at Miami game, where Orlando was able to pull off the win and take over as the number eight seed at the moment, uh, with a record of thirty seven and thirty eight. They also got the tiebreaker over Miami. So Miami has now fallen to the nine slot in the East with a 36 and 38 record, and uh, you know, kind of quietly, uh, due to in large part that uh, crazy, uh, you know, game-winning buzzer-beater half-court heave by Jeremy Lamb, the Charlotte Hornets have won, uh, you know, a, a couple of games in a row here, and are now just one game behind Miami and one and a half behind the eighth spot. So this is going to be really interesting as we go down the stretch. Yeah, they're. Uh... It's crazy. It's 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 a crazy finish. Um, like I was telling you before we started, the, the Heat look like they're almost a shoe for the playoffs. All of my, you know, Milwaukee's going to be at the top. Can the Heat get to the seventh spot? Can they get to the eighth spot? Can they present any sort of challenges to Milwaukee, given that Milwaukee's had some injuries? And now it looks like uh, they're going to be on the outside looking in. Yeah, the uh, the all three teams, despite the fact that they're under five hundred, are playing pretty good basketball as of late. I believe Orlando's now won six in a row, so uh, they're playing excellent basketball. And uh, you know, Eric Spolstra has started to lean on uh, on Dwayne Wade as well. I think he's been playing over twenty seven minutes a game uh, the last uh, couple of games. And uh, you know, despite the fact that this was uh, Chris Bosh uh, jersey retirement night in Miami, they uh, they couldn't pull out the win against uh, that uh, soaring Magic team, and and Charlotte winning a big time game in overtime against San Antonio. So uh, you know, not only has Charlotte won the last three, but they've won against the likes of Toronto, Boston, and San Antonio. Yeah, I guess you could say uh, luck is on their side finally. Um at the perfect time you know they've they've been a good team from a net rating standpoint the last couple of years but you look at their um sort of their clutch stats and they've always been terrible and that's why you know they've always finished seven eight games under 500 and they're sort of in that hodgepodge of, of no man's land um i guess from my standpoint because milwaukee is sort of locked into the first seed and because toronto is locked into the two seed and uh I, I highly presume that both of those teams are going to win their first round matchup. For me, it's just about who is going to present to them the biggest challenge. And and personally, I thought the Heat would. I thought the Heat could compete against Milwaukee given their defensive personnel. But uh, but with them sort of on the outside looking in now, um, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you think uh, Orlando or Charlotte could from a, a schematic standpoint, from a talent standpoint, present any sort of challenge to Milwaukee? I don't think so. Uh, I, I think Milwaukee, despite the fact that uh, um, you know they, they've suffered from some injuries, they, uh, they, they're just too good, too talented. Giannis is, is too much of a load. Uh, you've got to have a very specific type of player to, to be able to deal with Giannis, and I'm, I'm not so sure that, that either of those teams have that. Although, you know, maybe Bam Adebayo might be an okay option. You know, you need that guy that's 
not only a real good athlete and, and pretty quick moving laterally, but a guy that can handle all the bumps and the contact and the physicality of, of Giannis. But I, I just don't think that, uh, especially when it comes to when it comes to Miami, they don't have the offense. I think Milwaukee would really be able to shut them down. And, and again, Milwaukee's been the best paint defense in the entire league. And I don't, I just don't trust Miami shooting the three ball that effectively in a series against Milwaukee. Orlando, I think, could score decently well. I think they, they their offense has been pretty impressive, especially that starting lineup. But uh, you know, defensively, I just don't think they have anything resembling a guy that can can stop uh, the Greek freak. Yeah, I was actually really bullish. Um, I'm really disappointed actually that Miami is sort of falling out of it here. Because um, I was really bullish on their defensive personnel against Milwaukee. Um, just having a bunch of different guys, not one guy you could stick on Giannis for the whole series, but you know, if, if they started Bam at center and sort of went full switching system, uh, they could throw Winslow, Derek Jones, Richardson, Bam, just like James Johnson, just a bunch of long, strong wings uh, that could maybe present some challenges to Milwaukee uh, in their offense. But I agree with you. They, they, they just struggle to score. They don't have the offensive personnel to score enough at a high level. And that's why they've been relying on Dwayne Wade as much as they have, incredibly so, um, to just score and sort of will them to wins uh, here late in the season. Well, yeah, and, and Milwaukee as well is a team that, uh, you know, in, in previous years they, they lost in the first round in a couple of competitive series against, you know, Boston last year in seven and then Toronto the year before in six. And it, it was kind of like Giannis was, was the whole show, and they just didn't have enough support. Uh, and, and this year, with all the shooting they have around him, I don't think the offense is going to be as much of an issue. But uh, let's hear what you have next on your list, James. Uh, next for me would be uh, sort of the, you know, we're talking about playoffs here, and, and you're tying it um, east and west. What a team's playoff success is potentially going to mean for their moves in the offseason. Um, a few teams that really stick out to me are Miami, like I said. Um, you know, they're from a salary standpoint, they're pretty locked up. They have a lot of contracts on the books, um, and they don't really have any immediate upside. They don't have a young player who's going to take like a year two or year three jump. Um, their pick this year is going to be middle of the first round, late lottery. Um, I understand really why they didn't, try to rebuild this year, given that it was Wade's last year. They owe their 2021 pick to the Clippers. That pick has been passed around uh, more than I can begin to comprehend, but the Clippers own it at this point. It's unprotected. Um, So will they look to really, really tear it down next year, look to really rebuild next year, and try to get a pick in the top five to have some kind of asset going forward? They have nice young pieces in Josh Richardson, Justice Winslow, and Bam, um, but can they get maybe a young, more offensive upside prospect? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if Miami's able to make it in the playoffs, if they just flame out in the first round, is that going to immediately sort of push them to go into rebuild mode? I think the challenge with going uh, you know, a full rebuild is the fact that I think it was the, the summer of 2017 where they signed the likes of Dion Waiters and, and James Johnson uh, and... Uh, I believe Olinick as well. Uh, so, you know, you've got a couple of, you know, all three of those guys, you know, none of them are, are guys that you would say like, oh, that's a, a great starting caliber player, but they're all solid rotation guys. 
and they're locked up for another couple of seasons. So, yeah, I just I imagine it's going to be hard for them to to do so and I think that is an organization that that uh, you know, puts a lot of emphasis on on making the playoffs and and being this stable organization. So, uh, you know, I, I think they're just going to continue to to play it out and and be as good of a team as they possibly can. And unfortunately, with the talent they have, that means they're you know basically competing for the playoffs. But they're they're always going to be as soon as those uh, those contracts I mentioned come off the books. Uh, you know, they're they're going to be a free agency destination once again uh, because you know Miami is a uh, is a wonderful city. I can attest to that. Uh, I've been here <laughs> six months now. Uh, I would understand why free agents would want to come live here. Um, the second team I have, and I, I think honestly they're the most interesting team in the league from a what is their direction standpoint, and that's the Clippers. Um, they, they've really had a unique path this year. Um, they started off as sort of a playoff contender, but they had drafted Shea, they have drafted Jerome Robinson, and then you know they move on from Tobias, they acquire a draft pick. Um, they acquire Zubac via trade, and they sort of toggled this line between competing for the playoffs, which it looks like they're pretty firmly in, but also rebuilding and bringing in young players, Landry Shamet too, via trade, and sort of building with them. So I'm curious to see if they flame out in the playoffs this year, will they go into full rebuild mode? And if they do very well in the playoffs this year, there's been all this talk of them going after Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, all these free agents because they have cap space. If they do well in the playoffs this year, will that really push them to go all in uh, via free agency? Yeah, they they are a fascinating team, and 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 frankly, you know, after they made that uh, that Tobias Harris deal, I thought they were going to you know go full on tank and and miss the playoffs because they have a uh, lottery protected first round pick that is owed to uh to Boston. So the uh the fact that they're going to make the playoffs and and give that pickup I think is uh is not great but it just goes to show you I think that Steve Ballmer, you know, made that a uh, a prerequisite to that trade that we were still going to fight for the playoffs and they were were able to uh, snag a a Philly first round pick out of that deal. So it's not as if they they don't have any first round picks and and they also got the that 2021 Miami pick. So they've got some assets, but I just would have liked to have seen them, you know, go all in and on this rebuild. And uh, you know, the, I guess there's there's two sides of that coin, though. Is if if you if you do miss the playoffs, does that make you know potential free agents like Kawhi, who's linked to the Clippers, not want to go there? Right. Yeah. And and the talk has always been you can't straddle the fence. You have to be on one side or the other. So you either go full hinky or um, you know, you go full Brooklyn Nets and you trade all your picks. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I think they've done a really, really good job. They have a super stable front office. Doc Rivers, if Mike Budenholzer wasn't going to win 62 games, I think Doc Rivers would be right there as the coach of the year. They just re-signed him. Um, Shea has looked really good. Shemet has looked really good. We'll see what happens with Jerome Robinson next season. Like Zubac is a good young center. They have a lot of young talent but they have a lot of playoff caliber players who are late 20s, early 30s. So I think they're in a good place no matter what decision they make in the offseason. I'm just curious what that decision will be. 
Yeah, and, and a guy like uh, you know Lou Williams, I think, is a trade candidate moving forward because he signed that really uh, you know uh, really inexpensive uh, extension last off season. But uh, yeah, that, that's going to be fascinating, and and given the fact that. Uh, you know, you've got Denver pretty high up in the Western Conference standings, and, you know, they don't have much playoff experience outside of Paul Millsap. And you've got a team in Portland who just suffered a horrendous injury to uh, Yusuf Nurkic uh, sitting in the four spot. There's still a possibility that the Clippers could find a matchup that, that they would have a chance in. That's yeah, true. Um, there are a lot of vulnerable teams in the West, and the way that the playoff seedings shake out is going to be super fascinating um, to see if certain teams you know, strategically rest guys so that they can lock in a certain seed because they think a team at a higher seed or a lower seed than them, they have a better shot at beating in the first round. Um, we'll see, but I think the Clippers, they've been playing so well lately, they get a favorable uh, playoff matchup in the first round, potentially make it to round two. I think that might push them to go all in a free agency. Um, but it's just about the momentum that is you know, sort of driving the team. And um, Does the Kawhi narrative build up? Does the Jimmy Butler or Kyrie narrative build up? Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if that happens. Well, yeah, and Jerry West's contributions uh, with this Clippers, uh, you know, semi-rebuild uh, can't be understated. He's, uh, he's terrific. Uh, but uh, moving on to another thing on my list, you know, I, I mentioned that the Blazers might be uh, you know, might be a bit susceptible to an upset in the first round because of the the horrific uh, Yusuf Nurkic leg injury. Uh, if uh, if any of you listening haven't heard, uh, Nurkic suffered the injury in the second overtime against uh, the Brooklyn Nets, where he landed awkwardly, and uh, there was actually some some controversy online because after he injured himself and he was laying on the ground, referee Tyler Ford, at, uh, you know, was was, uh, you know, who made the call was going towards the score t- scorer's table, and uh, as he was stepping over Nurkic, actually tripped and hit Nurkic's injured leg. Uh, what's your thoughts on that whole situation and, and some of the heat that he's received for, for uh, what happened? Um, it's really tough for NBA referees. Uh, I think I'm more sympathetic <laughs> to them than, uh, than a lot of people online. Uh, it's unfortunate, the whole situation. Um, he was having a career year. And if they went into the playoffs with everybody healthy, I think they very easily could have won what would have been a first-round matchup with Utah. And, uh, you know, if they get into the second round, I, I think that's a really successful season for them. Um, but, yeah, the situation with the ref, I can't really take a side on it. Um, it sucks that his name has sort of been dragged through this. Obviously, it wasn't intentional what he did. Um, and it's it, it's just wrong place, wrong time for Nurkic. And it's terrible timing because I think he really could have contributed for them in the playoffs well yeah and you know the uh the other sad thing with Nurkic is as you mentioned having a career year he's he's been a great player and and uh, a couple of years ago as well you know heading into a first round series against Golden State he he uh, I believe injured his foot pretty late on in the season and missed most of that series so he's had a uh, you know he He's been able to be healthy for the most part, but he's had just these awful timings of these injuries. And, of course, this one uh, looks pretty brutal. But fortunately, I think he didn't suffer any uh, you know, muscle tears or anything like that. It seemed to be a clean break, so hopefully he'll have a, a full recovery. But just as far as you know, Portland, and, of course, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the game goes on, uh, 
the the Blazers are going to have to deal without him out there on the floor. Uh, you know, do you think this team has any chance of winning a first round series without uh, who I consider their third best player? To me, it depends on who they match up with in the first round. Um, you know, if seedings were to stay as they are right now, they'd be playing the Jazz in a four five first round matchup. It would help that they have home court. Um, the Jazz have been very streaky all year. I don't have an opinion on who would win that series, given that Nurkic isn't playing right now. Um, you know, I, I think Cantor can provide them good regular season minutes, but again, it, playoffs are about scheming, and because the Trailblazers aren't going to switch, um, teams are going to try to hunt him out in different ways, and they're going to run him off the floor. So the question is, um, are they going to try to go small in any way? They can't really go small if they're playing against Gobert. So is Zach Collins going to be able to provide them with meaningful minutes, big minutes? Myers Leonard, it's just tough because they don't have a lot of center depth. And you didn't really need them to have a lot of center depth because Nurkic was so good. Um, it's really unfortunate for them. And, and with nobody there to sort of protect the rim, rebound, um, I'm not I'm not super bullish on... Uh, on their playoff success. Yeah, you know, they uh, they they gave up a lot to acquire Zach Collins a couple of seasons ago in the draft. I think they gave up the 15th and 20th picks with uh, to Sacramento to move up to number 10 and take Collins. Well, you know, if, if that pick and, and those assets they gave up to get that pick is going to pay off, it'll pay off this postseason. We're going to have to see something from Zach Collins if the Blazers are going to make any noise in the playoffs. But but, uh, you know, I, I'm even more down on the Blazers' chances at this point. I just think Nurkic was so crucial not only to to uh, their defensive system where they have their centers drop back. He's just such a big presence defensively. I think he doesn't get enough credit of how good of a defensive center he is. And, uh, you know, offensively, with Lillard and, uh, and McCollum running pick and roll, Nurkic was a pretty solid outlet. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a it's a big time loss, and I would consider, despite the fact that they'll likely have home court as you stated, uh, I would I would consider them very much underdogs against any of those teams seated five through eight in the West. But uh, let's let's hear uh, what your next thing is. You've got to uh, look forward to here. Uh, my next thing would be how the defensive player of the year race shakes out. Um, you know, all see, it seems like for the, for the last four months, um, once the Lakers kind of fell out of contention, it seems like Steph and Katie sort of cannibalized themselves. The talk has been who's going to win MVP between Giannis and Harden. All season, especially with Trey Young coming on late, the talk has been who's going to win rookie of the year, Trey or Luca. There hasn't really been as clear of talk as to who the top two or three defensive player of the year candidates are. Uh, for many writers, um, Zach Lowe, Matt Moore, Nate Duncan, they're kind of just like, there's no definitive candidate that they support. It's been a very difficult year in terms of projecting who's going to win the award. There's been a lot of candidates as to who's going to make an all-defense team. But again, there hasn't been a front-runner for who's going to win the Defensive Player of the Year. I'm curious to see if over the next one-and-a-half to two weeks that we have left in the regular season, is there going to be some momentum moving in one direction for a player to win that award and be at the top? Yeah, and, you know, last year it was Rudy Gobert, I think, and, and Joel Embiid finished second. 
Uh, and, you know, to be honest, I, I haven't put a ton of thought into this. I, I actually plan on, ne- on next week's episode kind of going through the awards. But, uh, you know, I, I still think the two of those guys are certainly in consideration. And, and Paul George is another guy that comes to mind. Where do you have those guys ordered? And uh, also, is there anybody else, uh, you know, going around in your head? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of sexy Paul George talk, especially when he was, um, you know, having his huge games at the, the end of January, early February. Um, you know, with, with the defensive steps that Milwaukee has taken, it's hard not to have Giannis in that conversation. Yeah, good point. It's, it's also difficult to, to say exactly what kind of effect that a wing player has on completely transforming a team's defense. That's why it's very rare that a wing player wins. You, know, you had Kawhi, you had your Ron Artest, your Bruce Bowen, but typically um, it's a big man who wins the award. So that would point you to Utah, right now as the second best defense in the league, and Philly. Um, you know, if I had a gun in my head, I would probably lean Gobert because of the strides that Utah has made defensively throughout the season. Um, you know, if he wins the award, you're not going to really doubt your pick if you picked him because you know how tremendous of a defensive player that he is. But it's not as clear as it's been in years past. Um, although I will say, too, that Indiana has had a really tremendous defense all year, and it's really held their head above water since the Oladipo injury. So I think Miles Turner um, deserves some talk in that conversation as well. I don't think he should win it, but I think his, his name should be mentioned. He should probably make an all-defense team. Yeah, those are all great candidates, and I think an interesting sort of debate to have about this discussion, and also kind of the MVP as well, I think it factors into that uh, that race also, the idea that, you know, if you have to carry the, the biggest load in terms of defense or in the MB, MVP case, like your, your offensive load, uh, do, does that give you a bit of an advantage, you know, and that's kind of the, the argument between Giannis and Harden. You know, Giannis has maybe a little bit more help, whereas for for good chunks of the season, Harden had to do a lot of it himself. Uh, and and when it comes to defense, you know, a guy like Embiid has guys like Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons, also uh, you know, solid defensive players on his team. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Giannis. I would say even his front court mate, Brook Lopez, uh, has has had a terrific defensive season, and a big part of why the Bucks have improved so dramatically on that end of the floor. Whereas, you know, again, going back to Gobert, and I think why he may be the favorite at this point is, you know, he's far and away Utah's best defensive player. Yeah, and Utah has a good scheme. Um, you know, if they're going to play that dropping scheme, they have guards who are able to fight around pick and roll. Ricky Rubio's underrated defender. Um, Mitchell's good. Ingles is good. They have good defensive players, but it's not like they have great, great defensive personnel. Um, I think OKC has great defensive personnel with Adams, Jeremy Grant, Paul George, and that's why they've had such a good defense. I think Indiana has a really underrated defensive personnel. Um, you know, with Corey Joseph, they just got Wes Matthews. Uh, I think Bogdanovich has become a better defender. Thad Young is really good. Um, you know, you have a lot of these teams that have really good pieces, and it's interesting how you can compare that with the MVP race, like. How big of a defensive load can a guy carry? And in today's NBA, where scoring is so prevalent, where the game is so wide open, how much of an effect can one guy really have on a team's defense? And I think when in doubt, uh, if a team is going to be top five in defense, 
I think you sort of have to lean on the center that they have and the shots that they can deter at the rim. And that's traditionally why we've had a center win the award so much. So I think that's why I would lean Gobert. Um, but yeah, comparing defensive personnel is uh, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the MVP race. I say we just move over to that because that was one of the things that I had on my list. And I think the because of the, the Thunder sort of sliding down the standings now, I think it really has become, at least in my mind, a two-person race between Giannis and Harden. Uh, you may feel differently. But the uh, you know I, I feel like a, this, this uh, debate is coming down to a couple of things. You know, there's been the classic MVP, like when Steph won at those couple of those back-to-back seasons or the best player on the best team versus, you know, the, the argument for what Russell Westbrook did when he averaged a triple-double and, and carried a, uh, you know, kind of a weaker Oklahoma City Thunder team to 47 wins. I think that's kind of the debate we have here between Giannis and Harden, although it looks like the Rockets, uh, you know, will win at least 50 games and, and maybe even get to the mid-50s. So how much, how much, uh, how much of a priority do you put on a guy that can, you know, take a team to, to say, 60 wins versus 55 or 50? It's, um, I, I've been going back and forth on it for the last few months because, uh, you know, I would say probably beginning of January, because Milwaukee was just winning every single game, um, I, I it sort of just penciled in Giannis as the MVP, but, um, and, and it's not because of the 60-point game that Harden just had, but I, I think it's, it's all encompassed in that, you know, Chris Paul missed a lot of time, Capella missed a lot of time. And, of course, Harden went on that huge run, like, in December, early January. But now you look up at the standings, and although Houston's going to lose to Milwaukee tonight, Houston's third in the West. They're three games outside of the one seed. And you think of the burden that he's carried. Um, You know, this was one of my interesting topics, but I'll just bring it in now because it sort of applies Um, You know, if Harden keeps up his points per game average throughout the next, you know, seven games that they have left in the season, um, he's going to pass Kobe for sure as the, you know, he's probably going to end as the sixth highest scoring from a total point standpoint, sixth highest scoring season ever. Um, And you have a couple of Wilt Chamberlain seasons up in the top there. So if you take those Wilt seasons out, he's probably going to be third all-time behind Michael Jordan for third most points scored in a season ever. That's crazy to me. But on the other hand, I look at a team like Milwaukee and the jump that they made, and I'm at a loss for how much to contribute that to Budenholzer and the personnel changes that they made versus how much of it was just Giannis making a jump, certifying himself as a defensive player of the year candidate, and just improving on offense. Like, I, I, I'm, at, I'm at a loss for how much to weigh it on both sides, and um, and that's why I really can't make an MVP choice at this point. Well, and it's it also goes to the whole idea of, you know, Giannis, um, you know, certainly he has made strides this season, but, you know, I, I feel like even last year, if he had Budenholzer and he had Brooke Lopez and, and uh, all the other additions, Ersan Ilyasova, all the extra shooting around him, I think Giannis would have had you know, a similar season even last year. So, you know, it, it goes to show you how much all of these other factors, because, again, it's it's not an individual sport, uh, you know, play into this whole thing. But you're right, the, what Harden has done, uh, you know, 
being only behind Will Chamberlain in terms of a consecutive 30-point game streak. And, you know, he did it over the course of a stretch where, as you said, they didn't have Capella, they didn't have Chris Paul. Eric Gordon was really struggling. You know, so they needed all of those points to win basketball games, and he kept them afloat. I mean, I I remember a couple of weeks into the season, people were concerned, oh, are the Rockets going to miss out on the playoffs? They've got off to such a horrible start. But Harden's play absolutely turned the script. If I told you, uh, sort of pro Giannis MVP argument here, if I told you that in the last decade, the Milwaukee Bucks, based on what their current net rating is right now, are going to finish with the sixth best net rating of the last decade of all the teams in the regular season, would you believe that? They've had it. It isn't even something that's that's come up lately. It it was right from the start. The first fifteen or so games, their net rating was just through the roof. They they have been excellent all season long. And and Giannis really has sort of you know to to make the comparison back to LeBron James, who we talked about a little bit earlier. But he's he's kind of like a lo- a young LeBron in the fact that he is just so unstoppable getting to the basket that you need to send help. And when you surround that type of a player with shooting, and that player also, you know, Giannis, I don't think gets enough credit for his passing. I think he's become a a really good passer. I think it was helped by the fact that Jason Kidd, for the second half of one of of, uh, Giannis's first years in the league, had him play point Giannis. You know, there was a stretch where that was a a theme on NBA Twitter. But, uh, you know, his passing has, has gotten a lot better. And, you know, it, it is scary watching them sometimes just thinking, man, I don't really have much of an answer. You, you, you know, you have to send a couple of guys because he's just so strong. Uh, but if you do, you know, Milwaukee's got plenty of, uh, plenty of threats from three. And I think this also depends on, because this is, this is subjective, what your definition of MVP really is. You know, some people think, like you said, is it the guy who's carrying the most weight while also combining the most team success? Or is it the best player on the best team? You know, when you look back 10 years from now and you think, who is the best regular season team that year? Oh, it was the Bucks. Oh, Giannis was their best player. And he had a tremendous season. Yeah, he's probably the MVP. Um, they're, they're, I think they're both having historic seasons, especially if Giannis can somehow find a way to win Defensive Player of the Year. Um, it's just crazy, though, the jump that the Bucks have taken. I remember in the offseason having conversations with people because they kept, for the most part, the same personnel. You know, Bledsoe, Middleton all played big minutes for them last year. Um, And then they brought in Brooke Lopez, who you don't think of as a defensive stopper. He's actually taken huge strides on offense this year. And they bring in Budenholzer. But they've jumped from, like, the 20th-ranked defense to the number one defense in the league. I mean, how does that happen? That probably happens with good personnel changes that the front office made and great coaching. So, you know, what kind of credit does Giannis get for that? I don't know. I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, I just think, yeah, I don't think as great as Giannis is on the defensive end of the floor, I think his offensive impact is really what makes this team go. Because, again, you've got a bunch of guys that can, can hit some shots from three, now, of course, you know, Middleton and even Bledsoe, to a certain extent, can create a little bit off the bounce. But but really, Giannis is kind of the hub, the guy that is drawing those double teams, that's opening things up for everybody else. 
And, you know, this team is not only, you know, the number one defense, but they're a top three offense in the league. And I think Giannis has got to be given a ton of credit for that. And, you know, that's, I think, also the difference between Giannis and Harden in this discussion is, you know, when you talk about both sides of the ball, Giannis has been able to lift a team to a top five offense just like Harden, but then also has been a key contributor to why the Bucks are the best defense in the NBA. I think that's a great point offensively. You think about the kind of style that the Bucks play and the changes they've made from past years to this year, and what changes were those? They surrounded Giannis with more shooters. They're making Brooke Lopez as a stretch five take a bunch of threes, and they're opening the floor up to allow Giannis to succeed. And either he's driving to the rim, getting fouled, scoring at the rim, or he's drawing double teams and kicking it out to guys for open threes. But the whole system exists because of Giannis. When you're suiting to his strengths and you're succeeding, and that's allowing you to have a top five offense, I think that goes to show that uh, he is... It kind of shows the importance of, of him as an offensive player. Now, going back to your comment about James Harden, you know, having one of the best scoring seasons in the history of the NBA, you know, this year I think he's, he, he's you know, despite the fact that he took step backs in previous seasons, he's taken that to a whole nother level this year. I, I, I heard a stat that essentially was that James Harden is on pace, and maybe he's already passed Curry in terms of uh, – He's made more step-back threes than Curry made just regular threes in Curry's first MVP season, which is insane. But, uh, you know, do, is this another situation we've seen in the past couple of years in the playoffs where Harden's three-point shot has kind of just failed him uh, once the once the defense has ramped up and he goes up against the best competition? Do you feel like there's something different this year with these step-backs, or do you feel like it's going to be kind of more of the same? I don't want to rag on Harden for his so-called playoff shortcomings. Um, you know, when you look at him as a player, you would think he's a very playoff-friendly player in the sense that he's such a good isolation player. And a lot of times that's what playoff offense comes down to. Um, but on the other hand, he's very a, a very free-throw, um, reliable player. And those don't get called. Fouls don't get called as much in the playoffs. I think from a step-back standpoint... I don't see any reason why it wouldn't continue. Um, you know, if the argument's going to be that he's facing better competition, if somehow defensive players are more locked in guarding him on isolations um, than he's seeing in the regular season, then yeah, he'll probably make less of those. I just don't know what kind of effect that you know more locked in defensive players uh, that are maybe less scared to foul him that'll probably bring down his uh his step back three point success but um you know from a fatigue standpoint that's probably the shot that he's going to take and the argument for a few years now has been he wears himself down so much in the regular season that he gets fatigued to come playoff time so is he potentially even going to take more step back threes in the playoffs um i'm going to be interested to see if that's the case well, yeah, and, and speaking to the fatigue, you know, Houston has has not done a very good job, and you can blame this some on on uh, Mike D'Antoni, some on James Harden, but they, they haven't done a good job of resting James Harden for whatever reason throughout the regular season, and I think in large part, especially last year, it was because he was going for MVP, uh, you know, needed to play every night, and, and, you know, that might be the rationale this year, which I think is kind of silly because you've already won it. The focus should be the championship at this point. 
but uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see if if Harden can uh, sort of uh, continue his his uh, regular season play into the playoffs because it has not been the case the last couple of years. But uh, moving on to another thing on my list, we've already talked about defensive player of the year MVP. I thought it'd be interesting to touch on rookie of the year and the race that's going on. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of the current players in the NBA have started to get on the uh, the Trey Young bandwagon because he's had such a great stretch, especially after the All Star break, hit a game winner a few nights ago, uh, and you know when you look at the season long numbers, uh, it's starting to look more and more like uh, you know pretty even. Uh, I think uh, Trey Young and Luka Doncic both shooting around forty three percent from the field. Uh, and Young actually uh, shooting slightly better from three after shooting about 20% from three in the month of November. Uh, so, you know, Young's play has certainly made this an interesting discussion, uh, but, you know, Doncic has been pretty consistent all season long. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to, um, you know, how much people value sort of recency bias um, versus how much weight they put into the so-called season-long consistency. You know, Luca came out in the regular season, beginning of the season, played so well, uh, and people were even talking about Dallas potentially being a playoff team. Can they sneak in the seventh or eighth seed when they still had all those guys before they made their trades? And he was playing so well, while at that same time Trey was struggling. You know, he struggled in the summer league. He struggled at the beginning of the year, still getting his feet wet in the NBA. Luke already had a ton of professional experience. And then as the season kind of went along, about the same exact time that Luca's three-point percentage started to drop, he wasn't making as many step-back threes. And his numbers sort of started to, I guess, regress, um, regress to the mean a little bit. Trey really picked up his game. And Atlanta has become a tremendous league pass team to watch. Um, so to me, it's about what are people going to value when they're voting for this award? Second half season success or first half season success? I'd probably still give it to Luca, um, given his you know historic usage coupled with efficiency stats. Um, you know, as a rookie, I think Kurt Goldsberry posted a graphic about a week ago. Uh, you can find it on his Instagram if you follow him. If you don't, you should. He's a great follow. Um, Shout out Kirk Goldsberry, Sports Business Classroom. But uh, <laughs> yeah. no, he uh, he posted a graphic and he said, from an efficiency slash usage standpoint, um, you know, Luke is ahead of LeBron in terms of where he was as a rookie, and uh, and he rivals Michael Jordan in terms of rookie efficiency numbers um, when compared with the the burden that they had to carry offensively. So I would probably still lead Luke at this point. But I think Trey Young has shown that he is going to be a really, really good NBA player um, and that Atlanta has a really bright future. Yeah, those are all really interesting points. And I think, you know, to to piggyback off the statement of the whole, you know, Young kind of having a hot second half start and, and Luka being more consistent, I think, you know, you've also got a factor in Dallas traded away a couple of starters in Wes Matthews and DeAndre Jordan to invest in the future in a guy in Kristaps Porzingis. Uh, you know, in, in large part, what that did, though, was it kind of hurt this season's Mavericks team, So and it gave Luka less weapons to work with. So, you know, part of, d- despite the fact that he's been still putting up monster numbers on the second half, even if his efficiency has gone down slightly, it could partially be attributed to uh, to less talent on his own roster. No, it's true. Um, 
you know, Wes a great shooter, and uh, and DJ was, I would say, more of a pick and roll lob threat than Dwight Howell and, and Maxi Kleba certainly that they've been playing. And um, yeah, there's been a push to to sort of tank to try to keep that pick um, that's still protected. So that hasn't necessarily been in Luca's favor. And a lot of people thought that Atlanta was going to tank, especially at the beginning of the year when they were struggling. But, um, you know, it seems even playing their young guys a ton of minutes, they just have kept winning games late here in the season. Um, And although they will finish, you know, top six and seven uh, in terms of lottery seeding, there hasn't been a huge push by them to really tank like we've seen with Dallas here in the second half of the year. So I think that's been more favorable to Trey, obviously less favorable to Luca. Um, and hopefully voters keep that in mind when uh, when voting for this award. You mentioned Dallas tanking, uh, you know, to, to try to keep their pick. Let's let's uh, move into that discussion because we both had the sort of the lottery positioning on our lists. Uh, you know, that's what's going to happen this time of year, despite the fact that the lottery odds have changed. Uh, you know, there are still teams that are going to be trying to lose games to uh, to keep their pick, and, and Dallas is a prime example. And it, it's funny because the, uh, the, the Luka and Trey Young trade is the reason we're even having this discussion because Dallas owes a top five protected pick to the Atlanta Hawks. And so Dallas has uh, has gone on quite the losing streak as of late to try to get themselves into position to keep that top five pick. And that really has some big implications because, you know, Dallas with, uh, with this core of Porzingis and Doncic, they don't have a lot, of, uh, a lot of assets left to build around them aside from free agency this offseason and holding on to that top five pick. Yeah, well, you know, we all know what kind of success that Dallas has had in the past free agency about the past, you know, five, ten years, which is not really much success at all. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know. This is huge for them. And, I, and honestly, I'm really surprised that um, that they've gotten so far down in the standings given how well they started out. Um, but some important things, like you mentioned, you know, it's top five protected this year. Right now they're currently seated at fifth. And they're probably going to stay there, given how much worse the teams are below them. Um, you know, so if they go into draft night slated at fifth or sixth, they're going to need some luck on their side. They're going to need to jump into the top three, or they're going to need teams behind them not to jump in. Well, and it's and the t- it's the top four now with the, with the new lottery team. odds, yeah. And, and from a long long term sort of team building standpoint, not only do they owe this pick this year to Atlanta. But they traded two first-round picks in the Knicks for Kristaps Porzingis. So, you know, if they lose this pick this year, they're out to future first-round picks. And if you have Luka and Kristaps Porzingis, obviously it's a really good young core to build around. But if they could somehow figure out a way to add another top-five piece to Luka and Kristaps and cap space, that would... uh, that could have huge, huge implications for them. And if you're a team like Atlanta, you were you were really counting on getting that pick back. Um, and I think that's why you allowed Dallas to protect it top five because you figured that they'd be outside the top five. Um, you know, and Atlanta probably figured that they themselves would be in the top five. So adding two top ten picks sort of speed up their rebuild was probably what was on their mind. If they don't get that pick this year from Dallas. Um, they'll get a future first-round pick 
eventually, but you don't necessarily want that if Dallas is able to add another top five pick to Luka and Kristaps. So, you know, Atlanta's going to have their fingers crossed. Dallas is obviously going to have their fingers crossed. And another interesting team from a pick protection standpoint um, is the Grizzlies, who have a top eight protected pick um, that they owe to Boston. Um, And right now they are tied for seventh with Washington in the loss column. So, you know, if they can manage to stay in the top eight, they'll keep the pick and, and add a good young player to their core. Their future looks quite bleak right now. Their uh, 2020 first-round pick that they owe to Boston is top six protected. Um, you know, so if they really, really tank, maybe potentially trade Mike Conley, they can keep a couple of first-round picks. But uh, I'm curious what you think. If you're Boston, would you rather them uh, give up that pick this year to you, you know, finishing outside the top eight? Or would you rather them keep that pick this year and then maybe get their pick next year. Yeah, I if I'm uh, if I'm Boston, I would rather them keep it because yeah, it's a it's I believe it's top six protected next year and the following year I think it's unprotected. That's right. So you know the the Grizzlies I don't think have a very promising future outside of uh, outside of Jaron Jackson Jr. Mike Conley's only going to get older and they may trade him away this offseason potentially. You know, there were a lot of rumors surrounding Conley at the deadline. You know, and, and if the Grizzlies lose Conley, uh, they're going to be very bereft of talent. Uh, so, you know, if I'm Boston, I'm hoping they hold on to that. But at the same time, you know, there's, uh, you know, you you never know what could happen. You know, I think Boston was pretty happy uh, in terms of that uh, that Lakers-Kings pick that they owned uh, from the trade with uh, Markel Fultz and Jason Tatum. They thought that this Kings pick this year that they have was going to be terrific, and now it's not looking so great. Yeah, from a, from a pick standpoint, it didn't really work out uh, as well as Boston was hoping. Um, from the Grizzly standpoint, I mean, I, I think they could find a way to stay in the top eight this year. And then we were talking about it. I mean, their, their future does not look bright at all if they could manage to trade Conley. You still have a developing young big manager in Jackson. You'll probably play the rookie that you draft in 2019 big minutes. I don't think it would be very difficult for them to find themselves in the top three and win 18, 19 games next year, especially if they sort of strategically push for it. Um, so keeping this year's pick and next year's pick, I think, should be the priority for Memphis. And then by the time 2021 rolls around, I think if you have three good young pieces, you have a lot of the bad contracts off the books and a lot of cap space. Now, I think that's a good position for them to be in, and they can swallow giving up uh, that first-round pick to Boston at that point. Yeah, it is It is an interesting decision that the franchise has to make. You know, do you do you surrender a, a, a top-10 pick versus a possible, you know, you could be giving away a number-one pick in a, a couple of years. So it's just a matter of, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a risk mitigation uh, situation where, oh, we could... We could give up the the ninth or tenth pick this year, or we could risk giving up the number one pick in a couple of years. But you know, if if things go perfectly right, maybe that pick will be in the twenties when we give it to him. You know, you never know. So it it is fascinating. I think all of these pick protections are interesting. I think the other fascinating thing, going back to that 
that Boston pick that they or the Boston pick that they own from Sacramento that they got in that uh, Fultz Tatum trade. The other thing that's interesting, although it, it it has a very small percentage chance of happening, but if that pick ends up being number one, it goes to the Philadelphia 76ers. And can you imagine if uh, if Philadelphia is able to retain the likes of Butler and Harris and add a number one overall pick? That would uh, I th- I think I think the world would I think the world would just burst into flames if that <laughs> happened. <laughs> and I think uh, rest in peace, Sam Hickey, um, the GM, not the not the person. He's still here. Um, but uh, but I think all would just be um, you know thank to him for uh, for the job that he did and uh, you know and having that king's pick. And great, you know what? Add Zion Williamson and just burn the world to flames. I'm all for it. I'm all for it if Philly could do that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and and the Dallas Atlanta thing is so interesting. I think they both have bright futures, but certainly that that pick, if if it goes to Dallas, if Dallas is able to keep it, I, I like their future a lot better than I do right now. And uh, if Dallas, I mean, if Atlanta, if things go perfectly for them, they could have the number one and six pick in this draft and and that could be absolutely fantastic uh but uh let's let's hear what you have next on your list james for me i'm really curious and i've been struggling with this for the last couple of weeks but um but the last couple of guard spots um on the all nba teams and, and why there are such huge implications around it um you know i know you mentioned you're gonna uh do uh, more of an awards podcast here in the future but um, but my All NBA teams very quickly. Uh, on the first team, I have Steph, James Harden, uh, Giannis um, at center, Joel Embiid, and Paul George at the other forward spot. Uh, on the second team, I have Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, um, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, and Nikola Jokic. And on the third team, I have Towns, Blake Griffin, and LeBron. It's just those last two guard spots that I've been struggling with. And uh, in a sense, I sort of want to reward winning here. You know, if your team has a really good year, I think it should bode well for you in All-NBA voting. Um, But from a contract standpoint, a couple of the candidates who could potentially get those spots, uh, Kemba Walker and Bradley Beal, it could mean a lot for them from a contract standpoint, given that Kemba's going to be a free agent this offseason. If he makes an NBA team, that's going to make him eligible for the Supermax. And uh, Bradley Beal, the same thing. When his contract comes up, he will have made an NBA team. And that makes him eligible for a Supermax. So, I, you know, I think those would be the two guys that I would lean to get those last two spots. Uh, shout out to Clay Thompson and Westbrook. I can't get over the Westbrook efficiency numbers. They've been terrible all year, uh, even though he's sort of picked it up in the last month or so. And, uh, you know, I really like what Clay's done, but given the burden that Beal and Kemba have carried, uh, I think I would lean on them a little bit more. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. I'm not going to ask you to reveal any picks, but I'm curious what you think. If you're Charlotte or you're Washington, do you want them, do you want Kemba and Bradley Beal to make an All-NBA team so that they're eligible for the Supermax? Or would you rather sort of protect yourself and not have to pay them all of that money? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's been the big debate over that Supermax is the idea was it was supposed to convince the, the best players in the NBA to stay on their own team, you know, to give the home team the advantage. 
And unfortunately, it really hasn't had that effect. You know, we've seen plenty of guys. Anthony Davis, I think, is a perfect recent example of a guy that could have been paid the Supermax with uh, with his home team, but chose to to not take that and, and, and ask to be traded. There's been plenty of other examples. Um, and, you know, the, the, the worst contracts we've seen are the guys that aren't quite, you know, that top 10 level player that end up signing that deal. We've seen it with John Wall now, who, you know, obviously suffered a bunch of horrible injuries, and, and uh, that contract looks worse and worse by the day. And Russell Westbrook's contract, you know, looks pretty bad. So, no, if, I, if I'm Washington or Charlotte, I do not want them making an all-NBA team because those are almost guaranteed, again, for players that aren't those, you know, franchise-changing level guys, those top ten players. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be paying them that kind of money. Yeah, I think Charlotte might actually sort of hope um, that Kemba makes an All-NBA team, not only for the good publicity it would give them, especially if they end up making it in the playoffs, they get a playoff spot. But, um, you know, on the one hand, it's going to give them a leg up compared to the other suitors that he's going to have in the offseason. You know, you're a, a small guard who's in his late 20s. We can offer you this extra year we can offer you X amount more money and that'll give him him an incentive to stay in Charlotte but in the same token do you really want to offer him that contract and is that going to be a good contract when he's 32-33 I think at this time right now they'd probably prefer he's going to make an all-NBA team but they might uh, they might regret that a few years from now and then Washington you know they've already offered John Wall the Supermax are they going to offer Bradley Beal that same contract when he becomes a free agent you know and at that point what is your team um, you know they'll, they'll add a, a young player this year in the draft the top 10 pick but are you really going to be strapped up with two Supermax contracts two contracts that are going to completely eat away at your books and have no money to surround your team within your remaining talent it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with that and um, it makes me a little uncomfortable that you know, that much money that a guy can make is determined by, uh, like, media voters. But it's just kind of the way that it is, and um, I'm curious to see how it shapes out. Yeah, and, of course, Michael Jordan and the, and the Charlotte Hornets have uh, have had a history of making decisions, you know, focused on the short term. I think they would absolutely, as you said, if, if, he, if Kemba makes an all-NBA team, they would absolutely sign him day one uh, and— and really with the focus of, let's make the playoffs in 2020, you know, as opposed to thinking, oh, what's this going to do to us in 2023? Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of these teams uh, that, uh, that think in a very short-sighted manner uh, are, are going to be willing to, to sign these contracts that uh, negatively affect their franchise in the long term. But, but you're right, it, it's going to be really interesting. And, and yes, that, uh, that All-NBA, all those All-NBA picks are going to be uh, really, uh, really tight, and and I'll just mention a couple other guys that I think are deserving of consideration at specifically that that third team All NBA guard spot is is Kyle Lowry and, and a guy in Ben Simmons. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Simmons Simmons deserves to be in there. Um, it, you know, it, it's tough to sort of break down given what his weaknesses are. Um, how much he truly affects the game, but he does so in, in certain aspects for sure. And, and Lowry's missed some time, um, but he's been tremendously important to what Toronto has done in that 
you know, they sort of changed around this team from last year and this year, changed coaches, and they just haven't missed a beat. And a lot of that's due to his consistency and what he, what he brings you every night. So, um, yeah, for sure, those two guys, I would agree. Well, and Lowry, you know, there was there was a lot of talk about his shooting struggles early on in the season. I think for a while he was down near 30% from three, but uh, he's picked it up as of late, and last I checked he was around 35% for the for the season, a little bit down from previous years, but, you know, at the, the volume he shoots and, and, and some of the difficulty and, and depth of some of those three-point attempts, I think, uh, you know, a number I think that Toronto would live with. But uh, moving on to, uh, to, to a couple of uh, other things, uh, in terms of some some interesting playoff matches, I thought this would be fun uh, a fun topic to discuss. Uh, we'll start with some in the East. I think the Toronto Detroit, which I think as of right now is the is the two seven matchup uh, in the Eastern Conference. That's fascinating just because of the coaching situation. Of course, Masai Ujiri making a bet that uh, replacing Dwayne Casey with Nick Nurse would help his team, and wouldn't that be fun to see Dwayne Casey get a shot in the playoffs against his former team? That would be uh, that would make for for some good TV for sure. Um, no, I and Detroit has beat them uh, both times they played them this year. They they will play them well, and um, you know obviously the coach is going to be motivated to, uh, to to try to pull off a first round upset. Um, I'm not super high on what Detroit would be able to do in a playoff series against them, given that you know they've acquired Marcus All, um, who can uh, alleviate some of their rebounding issues that they had um, when playing against Drummond. And they have Serge Ibaka and Pascal Siakam, who, um, you know, Serge is big enough and strong enough and Pascal's mobile enough to deal with Blake, whether he's posting up or playing in the perimeter. And, um, you know, you get guys like Kawhi and OG. Um, you know, I think they could guard Blake in stretches. And uh, I'm just not super high on, on the rest of uh, what Detroit has to offer, especially from a perimeter standpoint. And with, uh, with Toronto having such good perimeter defenders, and they're all going to be locked in in the playoffs, you know, and you, and you get some games in that Toronto uh, atmosphere, I think Toronto would be able to beat them handily. But, uh, but it would be really cool to see the kind of reception that Dwayne Casey would get um, and the sort, of, uh, the sort of motivation and uh, emotion that you would coach with in that series. Well, and the thing with, with Toronto and the and – the thing that the Toronto Raptors fans have, have had to deal with the last couple of seasons is, you know, a, a team that that excelled in the regular season, that un- underperforms in the playoffs every single year, and now, of course, they've added the likes of Gasol and Leonard and Danny Green and, and Jeremy Lin. They've added a lot of different players, uh, and, of course, they've made that change at coach. But, you know, if they, if they go into a series uh, against their old coach and, and struggle again, you know, all of those things would come right back to the forefront. And then also, you know, if you flip the script and say Toronto just absolutely annihilates the Pistons, then you got to look at Masai Ujiri and say, well, I think the, the Nick, Nick Nurse decision was a good one. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure on both coaches. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how much, uh, I'm sure not very much, Dwayne Casey, um, you know, values the media's opinion on did he deserve the Coach of the Year award, how good of a coach is he slash was he in Toronto. Um, But like you said, if Detroit can really play them well and Toronto shows the same sort of struggles that we've seen in years past, there's going to be a lot of talk of why they get rid of Nick Nurse and bring in Dwayne Casey when they're going to end up having a similar regular season record 
And, um, you know, if Toronto sweeps Detroit off the floor, there's going to be a lot of praise given to Nick Nurse and Masai Ujiri and probably some some negative comments about doing Casey. So, you know, from an on-floor standpoint, I think think Toronto will will be fine, uh, especially with the kind of playoff player that Kawhi has shown to be. But uh, you know, but from a coaching standpoint, a front office standpoint, a media standpoint, I think that's uh, I think that's going to be interesting TV and uh, interesting series for sure. Another interesting matchup in the East. I noticed you had this on your list as well. Is the the Indiana versus Boston four five matchup? Uh, right now, Indiana has I think a, a two game lead uh, for that four spot and home court advantage in the first round. Uh, but but they still have two matchups left in the regular season, so certainly those are going to be a couple of the games I'm going to be tuned into. Uh, and uh, you know, with with Boston's real confusing season ongoing, uh, are we sure that uh, we should automatically uh, write in Boston for round two? No, um, you know I, I've given Boston, and I, I know you you had said on the first pod that you were you were pretty bullish on Boston, and I was very very bullish on Boston. Um, but I just I can't give them the benefit of the doubt anymore. Even though I know they have good playoff players with the young guys that showed it last year, and obviously Kyrie Irving and Al Horford are great playoff players, um, I can't give them the benefit of the doubt because of how inconsistent they've been this year and with how well Indiana has played, even without Oladipo. No, I, you know I, I can't I can't pencil Boston as a shoe in to win that series, and I think that's a huge testament to. Nate McMillan and how good Indiana has played, and it sort of makes me scratch my head and say, how good of a team would Indiana have been if uh, if Oladipo had stayed healthy? I mean, are we talking about them as a potential Finals team? I don't know. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, they're a team that um, you know with Oladipo, I think has that kind of ceiling. Whereas if he's playing at his best with combined with their team's defense, yes, they. They could beat anybody, uh, it seemed like, especially, uh, you know, outside of maybe uh, Milwaukee or or Golden State. But, but yeah, the, the other fascinating aspect is because of how Indiana plays, how consistent they are, they're going to grind games out, they're going to play slow, they're going to get India defensively, uh, you know, that that seems like the perfect recipe for a team that could beat Boston because of how streaky and inconsistent they've been. Uh, you know, so what what are your thoughts if if those two teams come up? And, and I imagine getting to see them here in the in the last couple of weeks of the season will help uh, determine your prediction as well. No, I, you know, I think that from a schematic standpoint, I think Boston actually matches up really really well with Indiana. Um, you know, Miles Turner's been great all year. He's not the most mobile guy. And if you're able to start somebody like Al Horford at center and really have him stretch the floor, um, he's going to draw Miles Turner away from the basket. And if Indiana decides that they want to put somebody like Thad Young on Al Horford, Boston has enough wing depth um, to where it's going to be really tough to try to find somebody um, for Miles Turner to guard. So from that standpoint, I really like what Boston can do. And if they're able to stretch Miles Turner away from the basket, they have so many guys who, you know, I say theoretically are good off the dribble because they've been so inconsistent throughout the year. But, you know, whether it's Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, uh, you know, Marcus Morris can get his own shot. You know, obviously Kyrie is otherworldly. So um, I I think that they can take advantage of some of Indiana's weaknesses from that standpoint. And then you look at Indiana, 
Um, you know, Demona Sabonis has been really, really good for them this year, but I think that Boston has the big man depth to match up with him. Um, you know, I don't think Baines is going to get pushed around. I don't think Al Horford's going to get pushed around. And uh, you know, I'm still scratching my head to to know what kind of offensive upside does Indiana have. Are they just a really good regular season team because they play defense and they compete hard every night? Or at the highest levels, can they score enough um, to compete with teams like Boston and perhaps even the Sixers, the Raptors, or the Bucks if they make it there, um, especially if all those teams are locked in defensively? Right, and that's where the loss of Oladipo, I think, is, is most notable, despite the fact that Oladipo is a, is a really good defensive player as well. His ability to create his own shot, uh, you know, not only in transition with the pull-up game, but getting to the basket uh, and, and finishing and, and creating for others was, was so crucial, I think, to, to Indiana reaching their ceiling offensively. But yeah, without him, I think we saw last year in that series against Cleveland that Darren Collison has some weaknesses offensively. He can't really... Uh, with his uh, lack of size, attack mismatches as well as you would like. Uh, so, yeah, I think Indiana is going to be a team that, that really struggles on the offensive end of the floor. An interesting matchup, I thought, uh, that, uh, that that may happen in the Western Conference, depending on how things shake out, is uh, the Denver Nuggets versus the San Antonio Spurs. And, and I think it's interesting because, for one, I think Denver clearly has the talent advantage in that series. But it's also a team that lacks playoff experience, and the Spurs, with Greg Popovich, are the most experienced of them all. Yeah, if, if anyone's going to take advantage of um, you know, Denver's youth and inexperience, it's going to be Pop and the Spurs. Um, Denver does have a lot of holes. Um, you know, if, and DeRozan hasn't been a great playoff player, but DeRozan's the type of guy that if you don't have somebody to guard him, he can punish you. Um, and I'm not sure that Denver has somebody to guard him consistently, given the fact that they don't switch. Um, do they have somebody that they can throw on him for long stretches? And maybe, yeah, you could say Tory Craig, Gary Harris, but are you going to be able to keep Craig on the floor and have your offense not sort of crumble and have him be an offensive liability? Can Gary Harris guard DeMar DeRozan at a high enough level? And then, you know, you look at um, Denver's other uh, – their, their, their strengths, given their guard depth in Monty Morris, Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, all very good offensive players. But uh, with Derek White, Bryn Forbes, you know, those are guys that have shown that they're capable defenders. And, um, and those guys could give Denver some issues as well. And then, obviously, there's Jokic. And, um, you know, what he presents as a defensive liability. And the Spurs will attack that for sure. They will find ways to attack it. And they'll find ways to expose him. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the Spurs do from a scheme standpoint, and uh, and if the Nuggets can score enough at a high level, given how well I expect San Antonio to defend in that series. Yeah, I I agree with all your points there, and and that's why I think San Antonio could give them a a, a really competitive series. The thing I like, uh, you know, to to uh, to talk a little bit in Denver's favor is the idea that I like the matchup of of Millsap, who's a who's a terrific defender, underrated defender, guarding Aldridge, and then on the other end, uh, you know, I don't know if the Spurs have anybody that can deal with Jokic. No, that's true. Um, you know, they'll they'll probably try to play Aldridge. Um, 
for long stretches at center, maybe try to get Jokic in foul trouble, or at least, you know, bring him away from the basket. I don't expect that they're going to have Marcus Aldridge standing uh, standing at the three-point line, but, um, you know, getting Aldridge in a lot of pick and pop and trying to bring Jokic into a lot of pick and roll defensively, I think that's a viable option for them. But, uh, but no, I mean, he's, he's an offensive superstar, and they don't have some tremendous defender at the five who's going to be able to deal with him. And you know, I, I think if you have Aldridge defending him, that's going to suck a lot of his energy that they're going to need from him on the offensive end. So, um, you know, in the same way that we say that Denver has a lot of weaknesses that, uh, that the Spurs can attack, I think Denver also has a lot of strengths that, uh, that the Spurs might not be able to deal with. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of fascinating series in that first round in the Western Conference, and it, we probably won't know till you know the the final day of the regular season a lot of those actual matchups. But uh, James, let's hear uh, let's hear another thing you've got on your list here that you're excited about. Well, like you had said, um, you know we're talking about East and West uh, playoff implications, and that was obviously on both of our lists. That's a hot topic. Um, you know, one thing that we, we talked about Milwaukee a lot, um, and they're, they're sort of a shoe-in to win their first round, and people have preached their consistency and how good they've been as a regular season team. Do you sense any sort of vulnerability from them as a playoff team? Yeah, I mean, there, there are some questions. I mean, first off, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and it, it comes from, from the playoff series last year against Boston, is, uh, you know, is Eric Bledsoe more of a regular season player? Uh, and uh, does, does his struggles or do his struggles from last year against Boston, is that going to translate to this year as well? Because if it does, that's a big issue for Milwaukee because Bledsoe's been so important for them. And, and the other big issue as well is Brooke Lopez. And against the elite of the elite, can playing that drop-back system continue to work for them when you've got teams uh, that, uh, that, that have a lot of shooting out there and uh, some, some, some high-profile players that, that can score over the top? Yeah, you know, the, the fact that they're not a switching team has been um, you know, sort of somewhat criticized throughout the year. As uh, as a detriment to the kind of playoff team that they could potentially be, you know, not not switching hasn't really hurt them much in the regular season. But um, no, I mean, Brooke Lopez is a huge piece for them offensively. But if they're not going to have him switch on defense, which you probably shouldn't, given the kind of player that he is, what's that going to mean for your defense? Um, they haven't deployed Giannis at center lineups a ton. Giannis has only played about twenty percent. Um, of his minutes at center, are they going to play, you know, you're going to expect Giannis to play over 40 minutes every game, especially if the games are competitive, are they going to play a lot of Giannis at center lineups um, to try to mitigate any sort of defensive weaknesses they have from the other teams, you know, pull-up jump shooting, Um, especially if they were to match up with a team like Brooklyn, uh, D'Angelo Russell, Alan Crabb, tremendous shooting on the perimeter. Is that going to hurt them if they decide not to switch? Uh, especially with, with a really good defensive guard like Malcolm Brogdon being out and, uh, and Miritich being out for the first round. You know, they have a couple of injuries there. It's tough to say that Giannis is a schemable player to play against because he's not really. But in a way, you can 
and sort of beg him to shoot jumpers. And although he's shown the ability to make it the last couple of months, his three-point shooting is, has improved. Um, is he going to be able to do that in a playoff game? And, uh, you know, Budenholzer, he's, he's going to win coach of the year. He's been a tremendous regular season coach, dating back to the Atlanta 60-win team, the team that they had the year after that, coming into Milwaukee and completely transforming their team from a regular season standpoint. But he hasn't been the best playoff coach um, in years past, you know, struggling against the Indianas, the Bostons, completely getting torched against a few of those Cleveland teams. Uh, he's had weaknesses as a coach that hasn't inspired a lot of confidence behind him as a playoff coach. So I think there's a lot of different factors you can look at. Now, I think we're sort of grasping for straws here. Milwaukee's been awesome all year, um, and you sort of expect them to sort of just steamroll through the playoffs, but um, I, I think there are some things you could look at to say, you know, X, Y, and Z. Here's why they struggled in this playoff series potentially. Yeah, the 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 Mike Budenholzer point is 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 a good one, and and I was going to mention that if you didn't, uh, you know, he's uh, as you mentioned, they the, he's he's done a terrific job in the regular season, not only with the Hawks but with this Milwaukee team, and. Going back to the defense that they've done, uh, you know, not switching a lot, mostly playing that same style of the the big man dropping back in the pick and roll. I think having that consistency and that foundation where you do that every game, game in, game out, I think that helps in the regular season. But the problem is, I think when you get to the playoffs, you have to play defenses specifically against the team or the, the, the defense that's the most effective against whatever your opponent is. And unfortunately, that drop-back system I don't think is going to be effective against everyone. Now, now surprisingly, I think it might actually be effective against, if they were to make the finals, the Golden State Warriors, because outside of you know the, the likes of, of Durant, Thompson, and Curry, they don't have a lot of shooting on the roster. So packing the paint, taking everything easy away, I think would work against Golden State. But you look at a team like Boston, which is a potential second-round matchup for Milwaukee, and I really don't like the drop-back defense against them because of Horford's pick-and-pop ability and just how many three-point shooters the Celtics have. Right. You know, we, we keep coming back to uh, you know Boston as a potential playoff matchup for just about anyone and the, the challenges that they can bring. Um, you know, if, if Milwaukee steamrolls through the East like they have all regular season and they make it to the finals, I can say, yep, we expected that. But from some of the points that we've brought up, if they struggle in a playoff series or potentially lose in the second round, um, we could say, you know what, we expected that to happen because of you know a lot of the things that we talked about. So I think they're susceptible to, um, to, to struggling versus certain teams, especially if that team has good coaching um, and a lot of veterans on the roster who know how to execute in the playoffs. But they're really good, and um, and, they, and they don't give you a lot of reason to doubt them, given what they've shown in the regular season. So um, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It should be interesting. Well, yeah, and the, and the Miritich acquisition was so big, I thought, because of, you know, again, the concerns about Lopez, the fact that with Miritich now they could go with more Giannis at the 5 and Miritich at the 4, but his injury, you know, definitely clouds that equation. And if you don't have Miritich or if Miritich is out there and not playing and, and hitting shots like he's capable of, 
uh, that that makes things a lot more complicated for Milwaukee getting out of what will be a an extremely difficult Eastern Conference and and that brings up another one of my points on my list is this potential Eastern Conference semifinals I think it could be the best Eastern Conference semifinals we've seen uh, in the last decade uh, with with the potential matchups of Milwaukee Boston and Toronto Philly boy oh boy would that be some good basketball yeah I mean I was we were, we were looking forward to that at the beginning of the year, given how you know the team's rosters looked then, and, and think about how much of a change all of their rosters have taken since. Um, you know, if, if Boston was playing to the level that we expected them to, uh, uh, I, I think it would make it a little more interesting. And if if Indiana had sort of dropped off, and we knew kind of for sure that those were going to be the four teams that were going to be in, I'd get really excited about it. I am excited about it. Um, I'm curious to see how the, the the seating will match up if um, you know if all four of those teams are able to make it into the second round. Looks like a Milwaukee, Boston, and uh, and Philly, Toronto series. Do you favor anyone in particular in those two series? So, um, you know, barring like Boston looking absolutely horrible and barely scratching by against Indiana. I would favor Boston in that series against Milwaukee, and and frankly, I uh, um, you know I, I favor Milwaukee against the likes of, of Toronto and Philly. So uh, Boston is the one team because of how many shooters they have offensively uh, that I think would give Milwaukee difficulty, especially on the defensive end, and I think Horford would give problems to the likes of Brooke Lopez and, and potentially run him off the floor like he did with Embiid at some points uh, during uh, during last season's playoffs. So, you know, to be honest, if uh, you know if, if those two teams matched up, I would favor Boston, and, and in a Toronto-Philly matchup, I, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's really special about that Philadelphia starting five is all five of those guys are really good offensive players. Uh, and what they've done, and you saw it in that, uh, in that recent Philly-Boston game, they attacked Kyrie. Whoever he was guarding, they would go at him. If he was guarding Redick, they'd run Redick off a screen. If he was guarding Butler or Harris or Simmons, they would post him up. But with Toronto, they don't really have any weak links like a Kyrie Irving. You know, even Kyle Lowry at point guard, despite the fact that he's he's uh, you know diminutive in size, he's very strong. You know, his nickname is Bulldog for a reason. And, uh, you know, Toronto just has so many good defensive players. I, th- I think Philly would struggle to score against the Raptors. Yeah, and, and Boston is so, you know, Boston and Toronto are, are different in those equations because Boston is so reliant on Kyrie scoring that there's just absolutely no way they can take him off the floor and play without him for long stretches because he's a defensive liability. Um, you know, I can understand them playing Marcus Smart in his place who would be a much better defensive player, especially guarding someone like J.J. Redick, but they're going to have to play Kyrie if they want to win. And you look at somebody like Toronto, you know, if teams decide that uh, attacking Kyle Lowry, whether it be posting him up or just getting him running around tons of screens, um, if that's going to be their way to try to attack Toronto's defense, I can see Toronto being okay with putting Lowry on the bench for 10, 12 minutes and playing guys like Van Fleet maybe even playing Danny Green as a point guard defensive player and bringing out someone like OG Pascal playing super, super long. They just have so much defensive talent. Um, 
and Norman Powell has 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 played solid as of late. Yeah, and and you know Jeremy Lin's not going to play a ton of minutes, but he's not a terrible defensive player. They can play big with Ibaka and uh, and Mark Gasol at the same time. They just have so much versatility defensively. Now, are they going to be able to score enough to uh, to compete with those other teams in the East? I think that's a different question, but. Um, you know, it, the, the ways that you can attack Boston defensively, I don't think those exist with Toronto. But in the same regard, if Boston were to put it all together, I, I think the ways that Boston could attack you offensively, I don't think Toronto has the same offensive upside. So, um, you know, it's going to be a clash of the Titans and uh, hopefully a lot of good, close, entertaining games. Yeah, and I think a lot of these, uh, you know, I think my thoughts on a lot of these matchups are going to be predicated on how the first round goes. Again, we mentioned with with Toronto in a potential first round series with Detroit, like if they look really good and and blow the Pistons out of the water, you know, that'll make me feel a little bit better that they're not going to be the same team they've been the last couple of years. And, you know, if Boston is able to get rid of all of this regular season drama and, and sweep the Pacers... Uh, you know, it'll be, all is all will be right in the world, and Boston will look like a juggernaut again. You know, so a lot of that is going to be predicated on that first round. But but I I, I really do think it's going to be a, a a really fantastic Eastern Conference playoff. And uh, quick point, kind of going back to what we were talking about playoff success and how it could relate to you know what teams do in the off season. Talk about Boston. You know, there's been the talk about Kyrie Irving as a free agent. And, uh, and whether or not he's going to stay in Boston. But you know, Marcus Morris is going to be a free agent. I don't think that they're going to want to bring him back, uh, given what he's probably going to demand on the open market. And they're going to have to pay Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum here eventually. Um, but Al Horford also has a player option. And, uh, and he seems like someone at his age is probably going to pick it up. But you know, if he has a really good playoffs, but they disappoint as a team, there's a, there's a world where he opts out and goes in the open market and maybe gets a longer-term deal, less money per year, but a longer-term deal, a little bit more financial security. Um, and then you look at somebody like Toronto. Um, you know, Obviously, Kawhi's a free agent, but Marcus Gasol has a player option, and Danny Green's a free agent. So if they disappoint this year in the playoffs, um, is Kawhi going to walk? Are they going to, uh, you know, if Marcus Gasol picks up that player option, are they going to look and move him? And, um, and Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry will be in the last years of their deals next season. So if Toronto wants to take sort of a um, tear-it-down rebuild move, uh, I think there's a lot of salary that they could shed in the offseason and a lot of players that they could potentially move next season. But there's going to be a lot of moving chess pieces with their team depending on how they do this year in the playoffs. Yeah, and, and to talk more on the whole Kawhi situation, I think if... If they lose prior to the Eastern Conference Finals, Kawhi's gone. Because I think Toronto has made such a bet on the fact that we can show him that we can compete for championships here. And, you know, it's uh, um, despite the fact that everybody talks about how great of a city Toronto is, I've never been, but I'm sure it is. It is cold, and it's uh, it's not nearly as uh, as uh, pleasant of a climate as uh, as L.A., for, uh, for instance. <laughs> No, shout out to Toronto. Uh, it's beautiful in the summer. In the winter, it's cold. But a lot of places in the Midwest are cold in the winter. So if he doesn't want to play in Toronto because of the weather, I would encourage him not to play in the, anywhere in the Central Division, um, <laughs> or Minnesota, for that matter. But um, 
Yeah, it, it's going to be it's it, the quiet situation is interesting because I know we had a bad situation with the Spurs, but has there been a more consistently excellent franchise than the Spurs in all of sports outside of the Patriots? No, but um, but he decided that the Spurs weren't the best place for him, so. You know, is him wanting to stay in Toronto, whether or not he stays in Toronto, is that going to be predicated off of how well they do in the playoffs? Or maybe he just wants to be in Toronto because he enjoys it. Obviously, I don't know Kawhi Leonard, so we'll see. Uh, It doesn't seem like many people know what he wants to do. Um, We'll see, though. It's going to be interesting to see what all of these potential free agents, Butler, Kyrie Irving, um, what their incentives are and where that leads them to in free agency well yeah and uh, you know again I, yeah as you said neither of us are Kawhi Leonard so we can't really speak for him but you know in, in concerns to the whole him leaving San Antonio you know there there was a lot of just the the drama with with the quad and how Tony Parker called him out and said you know I recovered from my injury and mine was 10 times or 100 times worse than his I think that uh, alienated Leonard and I also think the Spurs didn't do the greatest job of convincing him that they had a bright future. You know, they spent a ton of money when they could have they could have potentially got a, a young star to pair with him. They spent their free agent dollars on on extending Patty Mills and re-signing Pau Gasol and extending LaMarcus Aldridge. So, you know, compared to Toronto with a team that has a second banana like Pascal Siakam, who's younger than Kawhi and continuing to improve... I think Toronto has shown that their their future is a lot brighter for Kawhi than it was in San Antonio. Well, shout out to uh, Nate Duncan, sports business classroom instructor. But you know, he posed this question, and uh, it would have been the summer of 2016 when they had that cap space. There's rumors about maybe Chris Paul going there, um, them using that free agency money to really beef up their team, and instead they, you know, like you said, brought back Patty Mills and kind of just re-signed guys and just kept the train going. And no, I, I agree with you. I don't think they did the best job of surrounding Kawhi with championship-level talent. Um, but, you know, hopefully Kawhi, I don't know if players realize, think about basketball and team building the way that fans on Twitter do. But, um, you know, as a player, I think you have to recognize what Masai Ujiri has done in terms of the risks that he's taken and everything that he's doing, very Daryl Morey-like, in trying to win a title. And, um, you know, you look at the young talent, and you look at the depth and all of the moves that he's made to put them in the position that they're in today, I think you have a, you have to have a lot of faith in Masai Ujiri and the Raptors in building a championship-level team if you were to resign for another four or five years and remain a Raptor and surrounding you with guys who can help you compete for championships. I think that you have to have a lot of faith in them to do that. Maybe he doesn't hold uh, put, put a lot of weight into that. Maybe he just wants to uh, go to a different market and, and you know score 27 a game and compete for MVPs and maybe have some championship-level uh, team success, and maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see. I for one, uh, because I enjoy watching the Raptors so much. I for one hope he stays. I, I think they, as you said, Masai Ujiri is one of the best GMs in the league. Uh, they, I, I think their pitch should be interesting. You know, we we've got young talent in Ananobi and Powell and Siakam, and we've got veteran guys that that are ready to win now. 
and you know we can we can kind of uh, say they fall short this season. They can kind of just go go back at it again next year, give it another shot, and if that doesn't work out, you know Lowry and Ibaka come off the books, and they can kind of build again through free agency. Uh, so yeah, I think Toronto has a pretty good pitch in terms of uh, competitive standpoint but uh, it'll be interesting to see if that is what matters the most to Kawhi. let's hear uh, let's hear what else you got on your list i, I imagine we got to be uh, we got to be coming close here to the end we are coming close and uh, this last one that i have is it's a specific question to a specific team uh, from a draft standpoint but it's sort of a theoretical question as well and that is the chicago bulls um we're gonna see what they do with their coaching situation in the offseason. But over the last few years, they've brought in some good young talent. Um, two years ago in the Jimmy Butler trade, they traded for, um, ended up getting Lowry Markkinen, who, to me, I don't know what your opinion is, but he seems like more of a pure four and can play minutes at the five. And then last year they drafted Wendell Carter in the lottery, who is, to me, a straight five is going to play all of his best minutes at center. My question to you is, let's say that they get the number one pick in the draft. And uh, and any team with the number one pick is going to be looking at Zion Williamson first. Given how high they've drafted Markkinen and Wendell Carter, and given sort of the scheme issues with what kind of position that we project Zion to play in the league, and what Lowry and Wendell Carter project to play in the league. Do you take Zion Williamson number one if you're the Chicago Bulls GM and just say, I'm looking for pure upside and we'll figure it out? Or do you say, we've invested so much in these two front court young pieces who we think are going to be very good, let's maybe trade down or draft a guard prospect instead? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the trading down because that's what I was thinking. You you definitely, if you've got the number one pick and you're keeping it, you have to draft Zion. I mean, he seems to be the clear-cut number one pick. Um, but, you know, the, the, the possibility of doing something like Atlanta did last year when they traded away from Luka Doncic for Trey Young, and I think, you know, the, Travis Schlank, he may not actually believe that Trey Young had a higher upside than Doncic, but if he thought it was close... And, you know, the combination of having Trey Young plus another first-round pick, if he felt the value of that was more than having just one slightly better top player, uh, that I, I think that could be something that, uh, that Chicago could consider. And, you know, you look at uh, a guy like John Morant. I don't know if you saw his run with uh, Murray State uh, this past weekend, but I, I caught some of it. And he certainly looks the part. I, I have questions about his ability to finish in traffic, but... His passing, his ball handling, his shooting, all of that looks like he's capable of being one of the best point guards in the league in a few years. Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, again, because they've been so bad the last few years, um, you get a lot of empty calorie stats with a guy like Zach Levine. I don't know how they feel about Zach Levine long term. Maybe they think if we can keep him as a bench piece, that'll be awesome. Maybe they think let's sell high on him because we're not super high on his upside but um no they need wings and uh and maybe they could take somebody like rj barrett if they wanted another sort of wing slashing type score similar in the mold of levine but they need a point guard too and if they're in the position to draft somebody like john moran um 
I think that would be the best move for them. But if they're not, they are in uh, desperate need of wing depth. And I know they just traded for Otto Porter, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. When you're going to play somebody like Lowry Markkinen at the four, it's not like you're playing a 3-4 interchangeable, like if you were playing Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam. Because both of those guys can guard threes and fours. But if you're going to play Lowry Markkinen, similar to the way that the Mavericks always played Dirk, he's only going to guard fours and fives. So you're going to need a really good defensive player at the three who can really move on the perimeter and, uh, and is going to be able to hit outside shots. And although I like Otto Porter, I don't think he's a good enough defensive player for them long term. Um, so they have a lot of needs. They have a lot of needs, but I do like the young pieces that they've acquired so far. I liked the Otto Porter trade. Um, they're just going to have to nail it with a coaching hire in the offseason. And, uh, and try to use their cap space going forward. Hopefully they don't trade everybody for Anthony Davis, but uh, you never know with guard packs. You never know with guard packs. Yeah, that would be uh, a move that would uh, immediately uh, you know, be, be absolutely killed on, uh, on Reddit and Twitter because uh, you know, they, they would absolutely have to throw in all of their solid pieces that they have out of their core to get him. And then he'd be left with less than he had even in New Orleans in which he wanted to leave. So, uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't be smart. And, and yeah, going back to the, the, the Zion situation, you know, if, if you end up number one and nobody gives you a good enough offer for that number one pick, uh, I think you just take him. I think you've got to just take him and hope that, uh, um, you know, with, with three bigs, you can all play them, hopefully like 28-plus minutes, uh, you know, and, and just play a, a three-man big rotation. Uh, but, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see, and, and that's always an interesting discussion is, you know, if do you go best player available or do you go with the best fit, and can you kind of, like Travis Schlank did with that Trey Young deal, can you kind of straddle the line between the two and uh, realize that Doncic is the best player available, but I can still get... Uh, two players for one here uh, in that situation. But uh, I had uh, I had one final thing left on my list, and uh, the, the, the thing I'm most excited for is, uh, you know, and, and we've seen some terrific matches this regular season between these two, these two teams, but I, I really hope that we can get another uh, a rematch of the, the Western Conference Finals between, of last year between the Rockets and the Warriors. Now, I know people are, uh, are really tired of the Warriors-Cavs, and thankfully we won't have that again, but I, for one, after that brilliant seven-game series, would love to see more of that this year. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think the Warriors, to me, are a shoe-in for the Western Conference Finals. Um, we'll see what, what kind of difference uh, from them between regular season effort and postseason effort. I would assume a noticeable one. But, uh, no, you look at the Rockets um, and their seeding right now, even after their loss to Milwaukee, um, they are, appears to be in the third spot. Uh, no, they, uh, they're, well, they're tied with the Trailblazers in the third spot, so they're splitting 3-4. So right now it looks like they're either going to play the Clippers in the first round or the Jazz in the first round. And I think I would, I would pick Houston to win in both of those series. Um, and then you're looking at potentially a Nuggets second round series and I think that I would pick them over the Nuggets as well so you know if they don't have to play the Thunder in in any of these series leading up to the Western Conference Finals um, I think that they would I would pencil them in as well especially given the Nurkic injury too um, so I'm pretty confident that we're going to see a rematch of that in the Western Conference Finals and 
who knows what happens when uh, when we get there. Again, I, I feel pretty confident in putting the Warriors back in the finals, but uh, but we'll see with how well Harden's been playing. Yeah, and, and Chris Paul is starting to look a little bit more like his uh, his normal self here in the second half of the season. But uh, that's all uh, that's all I had. We got through uh, everything on, on both of our lists. James, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and coming on. It was good chatting with you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Duncan Dynasty. If you'd like to support the show, you can follow me and the program on Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave a rating and review. You can email me at g-bougay, B-U-G-A-Y, at onu.edu you can uh, give me any questions comments concerns compliments be happy to uh, to hear from you and uh, hopefully i can get back to you as well you can get a hold of me on facebook at facebook.com slash garrett bougay garrett is spelled with uh, two r's and two t's you can also uh, catch me on twitter at garrett bougay i plan on airing episodes just about every wednesday with occasional breaks throughout the uh, the entirety of the 2018-19 season, including the off-season. And uh, if you're if you're starving for more content, I urge you to check out any of my guests' previous material. Uh, a lot of the guys I have on have their own podcasts as well and do a lot of interesting stuff. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day. Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com Internet for details.